Yeah, tell your dad to get better illustrations. That's what you should do. <laughs> Have that take you somewhere you can get a gumball. Okay. Now get gumballs out of your head. And some of you, that's like, that was the best sermon Jonathan's ever preached. Okay, but turn in your Bibles to Zechariah as we continue in our Minor Prophet series. And we're getting really close, guys. We have Zechariah this week and then Malachi next week on Palm Sunday. And we will have finished our 12 weeks in uh, the Minor Prophets. And so hopefully you've been encouraged as you have heard the truth proclaimed of these prophets. And as we've together seen what they say of God and what hope we can take in the truth that are declared. Now, if you have the Version Bible app, you can click on events and find Reservoir Church. And all of the scripture and notes will be there for you. Um, and quite a bit bounce around in the scripture of uh, the totality of Zechariah. It's a bigger, um, uh, it's actually the biggest of the minor prophets. So there's a lot to cover in this survey this morning, but hopefully you will hear the truth that is within and find hope in that. And that's our goal, the truth that the hope of Jesus sustains, that the proclaimed, promised truth of who Jesus is is to meant to be a hope for his people and sustain us in the thick of life, in the difficulty that we face, in the challenges, and even the calls to obedience that we hear. And if you're able, I'd ask that you stand for the reading of the word, and we're going to read from Zechariah 8, verses 1 through 9, and I'll pray and we'll get into it this morning. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. And thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of their great age. And the streets of the city shall be filled for, shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts. If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. And thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong, you who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good and holy God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the redemptive story that all of your scripture declares in the hope that we can take from it, the reality of who you are that we can see in it. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us this morning to see the hope of Jesus and to cling to that hope that it would sustain us, even when things don't look clear, when there is um, violence against us, when we don't have all the answers that we can still Cling to the hope of the promised king who loves us, serves us, and claims us. Lord, we desire for nothing in this place other than you to be glorified as you work transformation in us. Have your way today. In Jesus' name, amen. And the hope of Jesus sustains. 
Now, this week, the, the question of, is it worth it, has been rolling around my head as I've been studying Zechariah. And it's a, a common question that we may not realize that we often ask ourselves when we face a lot of choices in life. Uh, think of it this week, that some of the, the times the question came up for me, is going for a run worth it when I could just sit on the couch and rest? Or is that second donut worth it? And you should know I answered yes. But that question also occurs in more serious ways for us, doesn't it? How I use my time and balance between work and family. Like, is the sacrifice over here worth it for the group over here? Is the study that we give worth it to find ease uh, toward the pressure of the exam that we have to take? And usually we have some really great heroes that have gone before us and they've answered the question essentially by the ways in which they've lived their life facing significant difficulty and determining that to surmount those things is actually worth it to take on the risk the hardship and whatever it may be that they face I mean, it's easily answered for those things that matter and it can actually then serve as a check for us in things that actually ruin us I love the Proverbs, our men's Bible study groups going through the Proverbs. I think some of us, the Bible in one year, um, it's been going through Proverbs and the sprinkling. And I do a proverb each day. And there's such invitation to wisdom there and the call against going for um, infidelity and other things and gain that is outside of God's plan. And it's essentially answering the question that those things are not, in fact, worth it. But we, we see this question, is the risk worth the, the life that I'm called to live? Is the embarrassment that I may face in a culture around me worth it? Is the sweat of hard work and obedience of building the temple worth it? And it's a consistent question when it comes to our faith and living in response to the gift of grace that we have in Christ. Is it worth it to see my neighbor as myself to actually love my enemies as Christ calls us to is the sacrifice worth it is it worth it to uproot our lives and live among those most in need of the gospel or when celebrity Christian leaders fall is continued faithfulness to the God they proclaimed actually worth it when building the church is a brick-by-brick brick endeavor that takes years, and along the way you feel like people are taking the bricks away from you as you're trying to build. Is it worth it? And God speaks to his people via Zechariah, saying to them essentially that it is in fact worth it to be obedient, to do the work that I have set before you. While you can't at the moment see the final result and you may actually be rather depressed by the small things of reality in that moment, he says to them, hold on. What is on the other side of the blood, sweat, and tears is worth it. There's actually hope over the horizon. And it's that hope that carries the remnant and us through life. And that's what we want to see from Zechariah. 
You think of the, the context of this book, where it lands. It's speaking to a people directly by behind Haggai, which we talked about last week. That's essentially they're ministering at the same time, calling the people to the exact same things. And this is a word to the remnant that is in Jerusalem. This is a people who have returned from exile and they are purposed to rebuild the temple. But early on in that rebuilding, they faced opposition. And so they ended up stopping the rebuilding efforts. And instead, they invested their sweat, blood, and tears in themselves, building their own homes, finding their own comfort. And God then, through these two prophets, stirs them back up to work again by telling them that he is with them and he actually builds better. That's what we heard from Haggai, that there's greater glory that is actually coming to his people. There are far more gumballs than you can imagine in that moment. And now for everybody in the podcast that just heard me talk about gumballs, you have no idea what I'm talking about, and that's fine. You should be at church. That's a last point. Ha. Really? That expressive people. But, so here we get Zechariah, whose name actually means the Lord remembers. So he's reminding the people through a guy whose name actually means, I remember you, I remember my promise. And this prophet serves as a reminder to the people of their long history and their really bright future with God. And both things that should keep them, that history of redemption and the promise of what comes before, it's meant to keep them steady as they lay brick after brick in rebuilding the house of the Lord. Like I said earlier, this is the longest of the minor prophets is among the most quoted pieces of Old Testament scripture by the New Testament. So the writers of the New Testament knew that this was a vital prophetic word to God's people. So it mattered to the church and it should matter to us today as well. The book essentially comes in two parts. And the first part is dealing with the past and, uh, and the concerns of the present. And then the second half presents the hopes of the future. And there are some very vivid um, visions, essentially dreams that Zechariah had all throughout the book that are interpreted by the angel of the Lord. So not only is the image come from the Lord, but the interpretation comes from the Lord. And then Zechariah shares it with the people. And all of it is meant to move a people who are despising the day of small things to take up the work of rebuilding. You see in Zechariah 4.10, says for, and this is who the Lord is speaking to, to the people. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. So the governor of the people who's leading the rebuilding effort, as he takes the plumb line to make sure the walls are true, the people will rejoice in the efforts to rebuild. Some of them are discouraged in this moment. If you remember, they're nostalgic for what came before. And this thing looks nothing like that. But God says, you're actually going to rejoice. You're going to see something far better. And though this morning, this sermon is just a survey of this significant book, I think we can see some important things about who God is in relationship with his people. Things that actually compel us forward and keep us through the ebbs and flows of life. And we can take away this truth that the hope of Jesus sustains. Like it's meant to keep us, to fuel us, to hold us. And that's exactly 
what this promise does. So the first things that we see that we can glean from Zechariah is that God wants a people. That he desires to have a people for himself. And the visions of this prophet that he's telling essentially unpack the redemptive story of Judah. And even from the opening salvo of the book of Zechariah, we recognize that God's desires are for a people to be his, to be committed to him, to be dependent on him, to experience his blessing as they live under his authority. We see in Zechariah 1, the Lord was very angry with your father. So he's telling of their history. Therefore, say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us, for our ways indeed, so he has dealt with us. So he's just telling them, that, like, I've always desired for you just to come back to me. I proclaim this truth to your fathers through the prophets that have come before, and they didn't quite get it, and you have the opportunity now to come back. And all along, right, in the redemptive story of God and his people, this has been his thing, hasn't it? The, the people would not choose idols, that they would not choose other gods or even themselves over God, but that they would be his, that they'd be wholeheartedly committed to Yahweh and what he declares of them and how they are supposed to live. So he recounts how he has worked rescue for Israel and called them to life, to his way. But in that redemptive story, they continued to rebel. And Zechariah 9, or 7 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgment, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law in the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. This is what leads to exile. What is sent uh, is the people off into exile away from their land, that the people face discipline and judgment, but that desire still remains because God always is, keeps on appealing for their heart continually invites them back in. And the explanation in just this redemptive story and the history of God's people and the understanding why there's this continual cycle of unfaithfulness in their lives, and even in ours, if we think about it rightly, is just that problem of sin, that missing the mark of what God has called humanity to. One author says what unites these visions is that they all deal with threats to the well-being and success of the post-exilic community. They reveal that there are two major enemies which threaten to destroy the community. The external enemies that kept them in their opposition from rebuilding and internal sinfulness and a disobedience to God. 
So God has come to the people and said, I'm going to deal with the external folks. I'm going to, I'm going to judge them. But what I need from you is uh, surrender and obedience. And the joy for those that are hearing this from Zechariah is that as a people, they are on the other side of exile. There's still opportunity for them. They can be faithful. They can be obedient people who rely on Yahweh for all of life. And that's the appeal in Zechariah. God is jealous for them. He desires them. He wants a people. And in that moment, they don't have the context for what it actually means. But this is God telling them, I'm pursuing you. The creator of the universe wants to be in relationship with those that bear his image. And that same appeal has not stopped in the church age. Because he still wants a people for himself. It's why he broadens the tent. It's why we preach salvation in Christ alone, because it is God making his appeal through us for reconciliation between him and man, that there would be reliance, that there would be real life and joy found in him. So in Zechariah, we have a description of two generations who respond to God's word in different ways. The fathers that came before, before the exile, heard God's word repeatedly, but they did not respond to it. They faced wrath and judgment. But then Zechariah's generation, they've responded positively to the call to turn to God, and they're going to see how God will turn to them. And we too then stand in our own lives with two paths before us. One of refusal, like I'm going to reject God's way. I'm not going to follow after what he says. I'm not going to do the things that he calls me to do. And then the other path of surrender to his way. Belonging is always starting with being chosen. And that's what God is saying he's done here. I desire a people. I have chosen you. You can think of your own life in playing any number of games on the sandlot. And you're, you're divvied up and there's a captain of each team and you're going to be picked, right? Like this is the, the constant concern of every adolescent that will they actually be chosen for the team and you might be anxious to be chosen because everybody knows your abilities you're the short kid the slow kid whatever or you think you're really great but nobody else does that was usually my problem but in that moment you're really unsure if you're going to be picked and even have a team or even worse that you'll be the last one picked and that reputation will follow you but Zechariah, and all of Scripture tells us, God does it different. He doesn't line up people and go through with the best first and pick, though. He knows us better than anyone, and still he is quick to pick us, to choose us. And the truth is that he's after you, friends. He desires you. He knows, as we were singing, he knows of your sin, of your addictions, of your unfaithfulness, and still he comes to you and says, turn to me as I turn to you. We often approach faith with a mentality that says, I want God, which in itself is not awful. But the biblical narrative actually reveals to us that that mentality should be God wants me. God desires a people and he has provided a way to make them his people. This is in Zechariah seeing that God provides the king that we need. Because embedded in this vision of 
that we see in Zechariah early on. There's the picture of the high priest Joshua. He's standing before the Lord. He's being cleansed by the Lord as a rebuke to Satan's accusations against him. And God promises to deliver his people in that moment. In Zechariah 3, he says, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of the land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. So the branch from the stump of Jesse, the anointed one, this is the promised one of God. And from the small things of slow progress in the fading beauty of the temple and the city of their present, God comes in that moment and casts a vision of the ultimate king who is soon to be arriving. And it's just the hope that the remnant needs to keep going to build the temple. And the the great thing is, I think you might recognize who this branch is, who this king is. So you hear the description in Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, also because of the blood of my covenant with you i will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit return to your stronghold O prisoners of hope today i declare that i will restore to you double this is the vision of the branch this is the vision of the coming king and they have been freed as a people under the reign of another king and now they're subjects of yet another But as they rebuild, there is a restoration on the horizon that God is promising them. He's saying it's going to be brought by this king who is righteous and brings salvation. And a little, a few verses later, it says, On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. So it would be great rejoicing and freedom and life when this king comes. And this is the king that they need. A righteous king. And more though than just a king, he is a priest. Because in that same vision, Joshua is told to forge a crown and rest it on the priests that are with him. And then God says to him, Zechariah 6, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jedediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. 
He's saying, as a reminder to all these high priests that have come before and will know that there is to be a king who is also a priest, the branch, a king and priest, bringing salvation and restoration, gathering those far off to build a new temple. Do you guys feel like you know who this is? Like there's some evidence here. Like don't don't spoil it yet because he's also God, according to Zechariah. Zechariah 12 says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas of mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And they're, as a people, going to go from mourning to joy, because on that day there shall be a fountain open from the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Now, now you can guess who this is, right? Because this is Jesus. Like, we read Zechariah and we have... The, the clear view of the totality of Scripture, and we're like, well, he's just promising the Messiah, the anointed one, the ancient of days, the branch, the sympathetic high priest, the ruling king, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. He is God in flesh, dwelling among his people, living this sinless, obedient life. He's the one that's pierced for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, and he meets the wrath of God against sin in our place on the cross. And on that single day, he removed the iniquity of the whole land, removed the burden from our backs, and he gives us new life as he just walks out of the grave. And so now we stand forgiven and free, all of us who believe, all that became his people, the people he desired. So as king, Jesus represents God to us, and as priest, he represents us to God. And it's Christ who establishes this new temple in his own body, uniting the two offices of king and priest. And he makes his people kings and priests to God, as Revelation declares. The result of his coming, then, is peace between us and God. And ultimately, throughout the entirety of the universe, this leaves no room, then, for his people to despair or for us to despair in the midst of small things, even if our personal corner of time and space seems to be that day of small things. Because the king we need is coming. He's a king and priest that will sacrifice himself for us. And that's enough to stir up obedience and action for the people of Jerusalem, but for us in in the wake of Christ's work for us. But God is always more, isn't he? He always gives just a little bit more than we expect or than we we think we need because in Zechariah, God promises a future of peace. And the future that he is set to bring is marked essentially by how he brings it. And I love what Eugene Peterson says. He says, In goodness, gently setting things right in our lives, in humility, not storming the gates of our cities, but entering those gates in the most unpretentious of ways, he comes in peace, restoring everything we've lost. And that's what the people in Jerusalem are desiring, a restoration of this city of God. And he says, oh, it's going to be so much better than you could ever think. And what is coming is eternal amazing for us. 
And in one vision, Zechariah sees a man with a, a measuring line in his hand for the purpose of measuring Jerusalem, essentially to make sure that it's big enough for all those that are going to come in. And the rebuilding, the reliance on God, being his people, the coming king, it is all headed to this moment of worship of the full remnant, the people that he calls his own. See, in Zechariah 10, he says, I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. It's bigger than we could even dream, and we see in John's revelation this picture of angelic beings worshiping before the Lord in Revelation 5 he says and they sang a new song saying worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God for they shall reign on the earth because the, the past is dealt with, because all sin is handled by this perfect, loving king, because the promise of the future with him for eternity is sure. Friends, we can keep going. Not by might, not by power, but by the spirit of the Lord. The point of Zechariah's forward-looking emphasis was to encourage the people of God about their future, to remind them that God is in control of that coming future and that he's going to bring all of his promises to fulfillment. And Zechariah revealed that this glorious future would be ushered in, administrated, and transformed by this coming king, the one that we know is Jesus. And the people of Jerusalem in this moment are sustained in raising the bricks to rebuild the temple, and we are sustained in our waiting, in our building, and can rejoice having tasted the first fruits of his grace and mercy in our own lives. He's the restoration of Judah. He's the one worth trusting on. He is the place of salvation and peace, and he has removed our sin and paid the penalty for it. He holds our future because he is the king. He is the king that we need. We surrender all of our lives to. One pastor says, although the reign of Jesus has already commenced, Christians today continue to look forward to the glorious future which will be, which, in which we will be transformed by Christ. We look forward to his return. We look forward to the end of suffering and sin. We look forward to the consummation of all things. And we look forward to our heavenly home. We look forward to being with Christ and being like Christ. We have so much to look forward to. And we know it will come to pass because Jesus holds our future. That's the hope that sustains us, that keeps us. So friends, whatever you are facing today, relying on Jesus, choosing his way, not despising the day of small things, it is worth it. He is worth it. Keep going. Press on. Live for this king by the power of his spirit. It's the hope of Jesus sustained. What, what do we do in response to Zechariah? Well, I encourage you to read the 14 chapters of this amazing book. But essentially, what we first do is just present the past. 
that we would surrender what lies behind the struggles even of our present and just turn to Christ, turn to the king that is promised and who has come. Because there is a fountain open for the cleansing of his people. And his desire is for you, for your heart, your salvation. And then press on under the king. I don't know if many of you saw in the archaeological world this last week. It was announced that uh, a, a couple new scrolls were found in the Dead, Street, uh, Dead Sea in the Cave of Horrors, which is a great name for a cave. And if you want to know how they were found, I can tell you after service. It's not good for you to. But one of them was a piece of Zechariah. And it was Zechariah 8, 16 and 17. And verse 16 says this, These are the things that you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. It's as if God allowed his people to discover this parchment to be a reminder, an invitation back in to his way in our day. So we live under this king as his people, part of his kingdom, waiting with hope in him that we can be confident that our king is going to return victoriously to bring about our full salvation. And we live inviting others into this kingdom. Today, you will be faced with the question of if what you are investing in, if what you are choosing to live for is actually worth it. And friends, in Christ, for his glory and our good, this is worth it. Climbing the mountain starts with one step. All the steps that follow that first one are worth it because some of us, I included, have been to the summit. I have seen what is over the horizon. The hope of what is coming is beyond description. Even the words that we hear from Zechariah. May we as a people have hope in this truth each and every step of the way for the glory of Christ and for our good. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the truth of Zechariah as a call for your people to return to you and a promise of a king that we need to unleash the kingdom and bring us to the place that you desire for us to be in. Lord, just in the the depth of your word, help us to see the hope that we have that is Christ, that Jesus, you have come, you have established your kingdom and that you've called us to life in you, a life of dependence and surrender, that your name would be lifted high and that your kingdom would go forth. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship in